Our scripture this morning is from the book of Micah. We're going to be reading three different passages. Micah 4, 1 through 4, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, and chapter 7, verses 18, 18 through 20. So starting with Micah 4, 1 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Now chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Now, chapter 7, verses 18, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Calvary. Hope you are doing well this morning, and uh, it is good to be seen by you, even though I can't uh, see you all. Thank you all uh, for your patience as we've been trying to figure out and sort out uh, what we're doing moving forward with uh, the new guidelines and uh, just trusting that God is faithful through all of it and that the Lord has good things in store for us no matter what comes. So I want to remind you all this morning that this is the first Sunday of the month. And so we're going to be taking communion today uh, as we have um, been doing the last number of months. So if you don't have any of uh, the elements ready to hand, let me encourage you uh, to do that here at the beginning of the sermon and um, be ready to go for communion at the end uh, of our time together. I hope you were able to join us uh, for the Friday uh, night of worship. I think that was a really, uh, that was a beautiful and a moving time. And uh, if you weren't able to participate or uh, see it on Friday night, uh, as Caroline mentioned, we're going to have bits of that uh, on uh, social media. So I encourage you to, to check that out. But this morning, we launch our Missions Month, and uh, Missions Minded is one of the strands of our 
of our DNA. And uh, from the founding of our church up into the present day, we have been, and by God's grace, continue to be a church that is focused on missions and making disciples of the nations. When Jesus got to the end of his ministry, right before he ascended into heaven, he called his disciples together and he said, here's what I want you to be doing while I'm away and before I come again, go out into all the world and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them, converting them, and then baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all the things that I've taught you to obey. And so for 2000 years, we have been engaged in that task collectively as a church going out, taking the gospel out into the whole world to all the nations that they might hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So it's been our custom as a local congregation here to set aside some time each fall to remember our part in this mission of taking the gospel to the nations and then also celebrating our missionaries that we have called together. So typically we would call our missionaries back from the field or we would invite them back from the field. Some of them are able to come each year. Some are not able to come, but we would set aside a missions week each uh, fall to, uh, to engage with our missionaries and encourage them, be encouraged by them. We haven't been able to do that this year, of course, because of the pandemic. So what we're doing this year is we're going to focus on November as missions month, and we're going to dedicate uh, the four sermons through the first four weeks of November leading up to Advent as missions focused sermons. And at present, we've got 30 missionaries uh, across the country, local, and across the world, globally, at home and abroad. So from Chicago to Ohio, to Mexico, to Spain, to Guatemala, to Taiwan, to Siberia. And so we've got missionaries all over the world, and we want to invite them to participate in Missions Month with us by joining in to our uh, live streams, as many of them uh, have been doing. So if you're watching uh, uh, our missionaries here, we're glad to have you uh, joining us. And we want to remind ourselves as a congregation how we are partnering with them in their work uh, wherever they are about the globe and also the work that we're doing locally here, both Oak Park, surrounding communities, and then across the country with the gospel. So our theme this year is going to be from Micah chapter six, verse eight, which has been read for us this morning. It's a verse that perhaps you're familiar with, or you've heard before, but uh, he has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly. And so we want to take uh, our missions month and focus it around these three admonitions of doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly. So I'm going to start off today with a sermon on the theme verse today, and then each subsequent week to follow, we're going to focus on one of these aspects. So Pastor Eric's going to preach next week on the connection between missions and justice from Isaiah 26 and 27, and then Brother Kalaf a friend of Pastor Manfred, who leads a church planting uh, ministry in the Middle East and North Africa. He's going to be preaching on the connection between missions and kindness out of Jeremiah 31. And then Pastor Manfred uh, will be preaching the fourth Sunday of Missions Month on the connection between missions and humility out of the book of Nehemiah. So I'm looking forward to hearing what the Lord has to say to me through these uh, brothers that will be preaching, and then also uh, what the Lord is saying to us as a congregation as well. And as a bit of a bonus, uh, these uh, next three weeks are going to keep in step largely with the sermon series that we've been tracking through this year 
uh, all things new, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. So we're going to be kind of continuing through the age of captivity, which is where we're at in that story, culminating where that story ends or that chapter ends rather with the rebuilding of the temple. When the exiles come back from captivity and the temple is rebuilt and then the scriptures really go silent for about 400 years and then they open back up at Advent. And so Advent starts this year, the last week of November. And so we're going to start Advent together as a church the last week of November uh, as well. So, so as I just mentioned, my task is to start us off by looking at our theme verse from Micah chapter 6, uh, verse 8. And what I'm going to try to do this morning is show how the, the theme of missions is connected to the restoration of God's people. And then how the restoration of God's people is connected to justice and kindness and humility. So we can't be conduits of the gospel. The gospel can't flow through us if we're not being transformed by the gospel. So by way of introduction to Micah 6, 8, which is where we're going to spend the the bulk of our time this morning, let's take a moment to understand the larger context of Micah and this connection in Micah between the salvation going out to the nations and what God has called us to be in Micah 6, 8. So into Micah. Well, Micah, to think back, to get a little bit of a a running start, as it were, I want to kind of think back into our sermon series that we've been tracing. If you go all the way back to the age of the patriarchs early on uh, in our sermon series, you recall that God called Abraham, who is the founder, the beginning of God's people, the Jewish people, calls Abraham out from among the nations to be the founder of God's people who were to be holy and set apart. So God promises Abraham, I'm going to make you into a holy nation. I'm going to make you into this great people. And then through you, I will bring a blessing to the entire world. So there's this promise that God is going to use Abraham to bring a blessing. And then we have Moses and the covenant and uh, Moses comes, he provides some, uh, uh, some laws that are to, to regulate and guide the people that's intended to give structure and to make possible this global vision that God had promised to Abraham. So the law was a servant of this vision of blessing. But Abraham's family, as we saw through the age of the judges and then through the age of the kings, broke covenant again and again and did not follow God. And instead, they became just like the pagan nations that God had called Abraham out of. So how could they teach the nations to walk in God's truth when they themselves were stumbling around in darkness? They weren't being transformed by God in any kind of meaningful way that they could bring a blessing to the world. And so God sent a long line of of prophets to call his people back to himself. And this is the end of the age of the kings and then on into the uh, age of captivity. But Israel won't listen to the prophets that God is sending. And so now in Micah, where we're kind of picking up the story, the prophet Micah takes his turn at bat as the prophet that God has sent. And he is warning them of what is to come if they continue on rejecting the message of God. And in Micah 1, 3, or chapters 1 through 3 of Micah, if we went back and read that, we would read a message of judgment and doom. It's preached against Samaria, which is the north, the capital city of the northern uh, uh, tribes. And then it's also preached against Jerusalem, which is the capital city of the southern tribes. So the people of God broke it into these kind of two 
nations at this point, and both are getting messages of judgment from Micah. Both kingdoms have compromised their relationship with God and with one another, and now Micah says judgment is coming. To captivity, they will go. But the message of Micah is not all doom and gloom. When we get to chapter 4, which we've read already this morning, Micah's prophecy takes a hopeful turn. So in 4.1, we've read that one day, in spite of all the judgment that's going to come in chapters 1 through 3, one day, the mountain of the house of the Lord, verse 1, it says of chapter 4, will be lifted up and established as the highest of the mountains. The expression, the mountain of the house of the Lord, is a reference to the mountain, the, the, the mount upon which the temple itself sat. So this means what, what, what Micah is saying is that a day is coming when the true worship of God will be lifted up to the highest point, when the people of God will not only be restored, but will be supremely exalted. So the mountain of the house of the Lord is the temple mount, which is in Jerusalem. And so God is going to lift up this true worship of himself. And then we saw in chapter four, what will happen when the people of God are restored, when they are finally brought back into obedience to the covenant that they were supposed to be keeping all along. When the mountain of the Lord has been lifted up, then the peoples shall flow to it and many nations shall come to worship God. Now, this Hebrew term here in chapter 4, translated as peoples and nations in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, are a reference to the Gentile or to the non-Jewish, you know, the rest of the world, the peoples of the earth. So Micah's point in chapter 4 is that when God's people are restored and they're brought back to obedience, then the entire world will come to worship God. In other words, the promise that had been given to Abraham so many hundreds and hundreds of years ago that his family would be a blessing to the nations comes true when God's people become what they're supposed to be. So the main point I want us to see here in chapter four is kind of a setup for then looking at Micah six is that, and what has relevance for missions month is that when God's people are restored, when God's people are brought into conformity to what they're supposed to be, then it's through that that salvation comes to the nations. So the application for us is that to the extent that we as a local church and as individuals are being transformed and changed by the gospel, to that extent, we're going to be effective in bringing the truth of God to the nations. So Jesus gives us the command to take the gospel to the nations. That's a, a continuation and an extension, really, of Abraham's promise that was given to Abraham, that he would be a blessing to the nations. We need to have that gospel take hold of us and change us and transform us so that we can then effectively take that gospel out into the nations. We can't give away what we don't fully possess, so what does it look like then to possess or to be possessed by this gospel, this blessing that's supposed to go out into the world? And that brings us to Micah 6, 8 and our theme verse for Missions Month. So as we read Micah 6, 8, we read what God's people supposed to look like. 
what it looks like when the gospel, the blessing of God comes and, and shapes our lives so that we can then through that blessing go out to be a blessing to the world. And again, to take us back to Micah 6, 8, he has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So I want to take some time here in the remainder of our sermon to note these three aspects or these three virtues, as it were, of what it means to, be, to have the gospel take hold of us, to have the blessing of God take hold of us. So we're going to start with doing justice. What does it mean to do justice, right? This is kind of the beginning here of Micah's vision. At a root level, to do justice means to do what's right means to do what's right. But we need to say a bit more because our, uh, our American conceptions of justice don't match, map exactly on to the biblical conception of justice. And so I want to talk a little bit about how we in America think about justice and then bring that into conformity uh, or conversation with how the Bible talks about justice. Traditional, ju or in American culture, we have two primary ways of thinking about justice. We could think about justice as traditional justice, or we could call it retributive justice, but I'm going to call it traditional justice for short. Mostly if we just use the term justice, this tends to be the, the way that we think about justice, traditional justice, and then also social justice. So tr traditional justice first, traditional justice is concerned about punishment and consequence. It's, it's about making sure that rules are enforced and that ne'er-do-wellers are held accountable when they don't abide by the rules. In traditional justice, we draw a straight line between consequences and punishment. To do the crime is to get the time. So because of that kind of conception of justice, traditional justice and mercy don't, like they don't get together and hang out on Saturday night, right? They're, they're, they're doing two different things. They stand opposed to each other. They move in different directions. Right? To move in the direction of traditional justice is to move away from mercy and vice versa. All right, so that's traditional justice. Then we think of social justice. Social justice is concerned with taking care of the oppressed and the downtrodden. So if you think about ideally social or ideally the job of traditional justice, right? So traditional justice can go sour in all sorts of ways, right? But when traditional justice is doing what it's supposed to, so we conceive of traditional justice in an ideal sense, if ideally the job of traditional justice is to make sure that the rules are followed so that no one gets hurt, right? That's the point of the rules of the road, right? We have rules of the road so that no one gets hurt, right? So that it's safer out there, right? So the, the job of traditional justice is to make sure that no one gets hurt. The job of social justice is to make sure that those who have been hurt when the rules aren't followed are taken care of. So when traditional justice establishes itself to prevent people from getting hurt, and then it's not able to prevent people from getting hurt, that's where social justice steps in. So in other words, social justice binds the wounds that traditional justice wasn't able to prevent. So in our American vernacular, we have these two concepts of justice, right? 
that are doing kind of two different things, connected but different. But here's the beauty of the biblical concept of justice. It's a perfect synergy of traditional justice and social justice. It's both of these things. The same Hebrew word is used throughout the Old Testament in particular for both of these concepts. So biblical, biblical justice establishes order and rules that are intended to prevent harm. And biblical justice comes to the aid of those who have been harmed when the rules are not followed, right? So biblical justice does both of these things. And this is essentially the kind of justice that a parent provides for their children, right? I mean, as parents, if you have kids, right, or if you've been a kid, which all of us have, right? If you have kids as a parent, your job is not just to present rules that are there to prevent harm. I mean, that is part of your job, right? And so like, if I make a rule, you know, my children shall not punch each other in the face, right? So there's the rule. And then I might have some consequences. If you do punch your sibling in the face, this is going to be the consequence of what except might, might be. But if in the event that my children do punch each other in the face, my job as a parent is not simply to punish the one that punched the other kid in the face. My job as a parent is also to provide some uh, version of restorative justice or care of justice to take care of the child that was punched in the face because my other kid didn't follow the rules, right? So we need to have both of these concepts of justice in play. And we do, as parents, have both of these concepts of justice in play. And this is the concept of justice that the Bible has. It's both of these things together. To be just is to have rules established that are there to prevent harm and to take care of people who are harmed when the rules are not followed. So when it comes to the mission of God, to our engagement in missions or evangelism, if we want to do justice and we want to teach others to do justice, then it's important that we live into and speak about Christ in the spirit of true biblical justice. So on the one hand, Jesus is the king. He's the rule maker. He's the judge and the one with whom we have to do. But Jesus is also the healer and the redeemer, and he's the deliverer of the oppressed. So to do justice then means that we order our lives and rightly proclaim Jesus as the judge. And it means to do justice that we also act as healers and helpers and defenders of those who have been harmed by injustice. The people of God can't go all one way or the other. There are ditches there. For those of you who know that I like my ditches, right? Stay out of the ditches. As I mentioned last week, our culture, we're talking about politics, our culture tends to be fractured and polarizing. It takes God's ideal and it splits it in half and sends it in different directions. And the, the halves are not incorrect, but they become unbalanced, right? They, they move in wrong directions. When they're severed from each other, you get into problems. The gospel compels us to hold these things together. So don't let yourself get fixated on only one aspect of God's justice. So if you're a champion, if your kind of default setting for justice is traditional justice, then that's great. Well and good, right? But be willing to engage in true godly social justice when traditional justice falls short. Because traditional justice can't always prevent harm. 
It's important for preventing harm. We need it to prevent harm, but it can't always prevent harm. And so when it can't prevent harm, that's where we need social justice to step in. So we can't spend all of our lives just trying to prevent harm. We have to be willing to also step in when we haven't been able to prevent harm through traditional justice. Or if you're a champion of social justice, that's well and good too. But then be willing to support and recognize the need for true, godly, traditional justice as it attempts to prevent the need for social justice, right? If, if traditional justice did its job absolutely perfectly, there would be no need for social justice, right? We need social justice because traditional justice hasn't succeeded, right? So don't put all of your effort into just binding wounds. You also want to put some effort into trying to prevent the wounds in the first place, which is what traditional justice is doing. So as we engage in God's mission, individually and as a congregation, we want to do and preach true biblical justice, all right? That's what Micah is talking about. That's what God is talking about when he says, do justice, true biblical justice. Second, love kindness. I love this expression here, particularly how it works itself out in the Hebrew. Uh, In the Hebrew, the phrase love kindness comes from two Hebrew words, abat and chesed. Now, if you know Hebrew, which only like four of us in the congregation do, and I am not one of the four that know Hebrew. Both of these words are very frequently translated as love, right? So you're reading through the Bible and you come upon the word love, and very often it will be abat, and sometimes it will be kesed. So love is an English translation of both of these words. The first word for love, abat, speaks of family love. So it talks about brothers loving each other, It might even talk about romantic love as well. So you go into Song of Songs, you're going to find this word as well, which is a whole book of the Bible about romantic love. The second word, kesed, speaks of God's covenantal love. So it also talks about love and God's love for his people. So we could translate this phrase more literally as love, love, or be in love with love. And I think this gets to the heart of our relationship with God. God doesn't simply love us out of a sense of duty. He actually loves loving us. I mean, think about that for a second. Understanding God's emotional life as stretches beyond human reckoning. And theologians always have different things to say about God's emotional life. But the reason we can't understand God's emotional life is not because his emotional life is so flat or because it's less complex than ours, it's actually infinitely more complex than ours. We can't even begin to comprehend it. But the reality is when God tells us to love love or to be in love with love, he's telling us that because it reflects his heart of love towards us. He doesn't just love us, he loves loving us. I was in a theological symposium a few weeks ago uh, in my work with the Center for Pastor Theologians. And the, the group was discussing the virtue of love. That was kind of the theme of, of the symposium. And so we had a social scientist uh, that, has, that had come as a guest presenter, and he was presenting uh, some social science work on the theme or the virtue of love. So he was a Christian and still is presumably a Christian because it was only a couple of weeks ago. And he remarked how he grew up always being taught in church that love was an action, not a feeling. And so maybe you've, maybe this is something you've heard before too. I mean, I remember hearing this as well growing up in church. Feelings come and go and 
thus they can't be the basis of true Christian love because true Christian love is what you do. It's not just how you feel. And uh, maybe you've heard that before. But then the, our guest presenter, he went on to say that as he studied human interaction and the Bible, he said he's come to see that love is not just an action of duty, but it's also an emotion of the heart and that these need to go together. And had I been a bit quicker on my feet, I could have pointed him to Micah 6, 8. Because as Christians, we are called not simply to do love, but to love love. So men, imagine giving your wife a rose uh, for your anniversary and you give it to her in the spirit of rote obedience to the duty of love and as an affirmation of the institution of marriage. And so you come home and you're like, here is my rose that I give to you because it's the right thing to do. And I want you to know that I love you and I believe in marriage, right? I mean, that would just not work as an anniversary gift. It would be no good because a wife is not touched by a mere act of obedience, but is touched by your heart and your feelings that attend to that mere act of obedience or to that act of obedience, so it's very similar with how God calls us to love others. When God calls us to love himself and to love others, he's calling us to do more than act loving. He wants us to feel something too. Now, I know that we're all different in our temperaments and some of us run very hot. Some of us not so much. We're a bit more flat. When I was at my previous church, uh, one of the pastors used to uh, jokingly refer to me as Pastor Flatliner. And uh, maybe actually he wasn't joking. I, I, I don't even know really. But, uh, but I know that we're all different in how we express ourselves and our temperaments in the world. And that's okay. Not everybody is, is, runs the same temperature, right? But if you can get emotionally excited about a soccer match or about your favorite song or about the latest Kardashian hair video or, or, or your Xbox game, then that's a sign that you have some capacity for emotion. So do you bring your, your, the same loving affections to God and to people that you do to other aspects of your life? Do you love kindness? Do you love to show mercy? Do you love to see the downcast raised from the ashes? When it comes to embracing God's love and sharing it with others, we need to let the love touch our hearts, right? It's not just mere acts of obedience that God is calling us to. So when we engage in missions and in the proclamation of the gospel, how can we tell people that God really truly loves loving them if we don't have any experience of love like that? We haven't experienced God's love like that and we don't give love like that. We don't all need to be emotional live wires, right? We're not trying to be something we're not, but God created emotions for a reason. He created us to see truth, which is himself. He is the truth. And not only to see the truth, but to delight and rejoice in the truth. That's what love is. Love is seeing what is good and true and beautiful and rejoicing in what is good and true and beautiful. So as we live out and preach the gospel, let's learn to not only do loving things for each other and for the world, but even more fully to love doing loving things. 
All right, so first, do and preach justice. Second, love and preach kindness. And third, walk humbly. The final call in Micah 6, 8 is to walk humbly. This command is perhaps, I think, foundational to the first two. The word translated humbly carries the idea of cautious or careful or wise or attentive. To walk humbly is to walk with an awareness of who we are and who we are in relation to God. Careful and attentive humility is the starting place. It is the the foundational starting place of every creature before God. So sometimes when I'm feeling paternal, I'll say to my kids as they're leaving the house, remember who you are, remember who you are. And I'm not actually sure what that means. I've just, it's something I've heard that other parents have said. And I just like to say it when they're leaving because it kind of gets an eye roll out of them, right? So I'm not exactly sure what it means. I think it means something like, remember you're a good person, so live like it. Or remember you're a he stand, so don't do anything to embarrass the family. It's something like that, right? But whatever the meaning, why parents say it, I think it's a good expression for us to live by when it comes to this issue of humility. As we step out into the world, we do well to remember who we are and who we are not, right? Who we are and who we are not. We are creatures dependent upon God for all of our necessities. We are not God himself who supplies all of our own needs. We are creatures in need. When we forget who we are, when we forget that we are creatures and we exalt ourselves or put ourselves in the place of God in pride, we set ourselves up for ruin and disaster and we cannot effectively communicate the gospel. Do you remember the story of King Nebuchadnezzar? He was the king of Babylon, one of the kings that came in and sacked Jerusalem, right? Well, Daniel chapter four recounts story of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was feeling pretty good about himself, having conquered, you know, the whole known world at the time. And he was walking up on his rooftop in his hanging gardens. So the hanging gardens of Babylon uh, one of the seven wonders of the world. You can Google it and, you know, you can see kind of artist renderings of it, but it was an, a phenomenal thing that had been created, right? And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar is walking uh, in his palace rooftops among his uh, hanging gardens, and he is reveling in his own glory. And uh, this is what he says. He says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Look what all I have made. And right then God strikes him down, strikes him down and he makes him mute and dumb and sends him like a beast out into the fields for seven years to teach him humility for exalting himself in the place of God. And after seven years of being humbled, Nebuchadnezzar finally comes to his senses. And, and when he comes to himself and he humbles himself, he offers a prayer back to God. And in his prayer, he acknowledges Quote, that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And God does according to his will among the host of heaven, and none can stay his hand. Not even the mighty king of Babylon can compare with the glory and the majesty that is God. Not even the host of heaven can, can thwart God's will. No one can stay his hand. And then Nebuchadnezzar closes by saying this, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And Nebuchadnezzar had learned that firsthand. Everything that we have, everything that we need, everything that we are called to do, all of it is dependent upon God's provision in our lives. 
And that's what it means to walk humbly. It means to live with an awareness of our need for God and the limitations of what we can do to acknowledge our place before God in the world. So Christian humility isn't being mousy. It's, it's not being weak or uh, uh, annoyingly deferential to everybody else. It's not simply being non-assertive. True humility is an honest and self-aware posture about the truth of who you are, the truth of who others are, and the truth of who God is. C.S. Lewis uh, has written on uh, the issue of humility in his uh, pretty famous book called Mere Christianity. And I love this quote where he talks about humility. So listen to what he says about humility. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And I think that's the key to true humility. It's just not thinking about ourselves. Sometimes we spend so much time trying to be humble, but all we're doing is just thinking about ourselves being humble. That's actually not humility. Not thinking much about yourself at all, but instead thinking about others. That's the spirit of true humility. And there's such freedom in that to not always be obsessed with yourself and how am I coming across and how am I looking and how am I sounding? What are they thinking about me, right? No, you just don't even think about that. You just think about other people. That's the essence of true humility. As we think about and live into the proclaiming of the gospel, we need to do it in the spirit of true Christian humility because the gospel calls us to step outside of ourselves to acknowledge the supremacy of God and to order our lives in service of others and a spirit of true humility. That's the key for that actually happening. So do justice, do and preach justice, love and preach kindness and walk and preach with humility. All right, there's a lot more that one can and should say about justice, mercy, and humility, and the connection between these virtues and our mission to the nations, but that's okay because we've got three more sermons, which we're going to cover whole sermons dedicated to each of these topics. But the primary point I want us to make this morning is that we can't effectively engage in missions, whether that's abroad globally in the world or whether it's at home locally here in the United States, or it's just across the street with our neighbors, or maybe a person that lives on the other side of the house. We can't engage in missions if we are not living into the reality of the gospel ourselves. As you think about your life, what stands in the way of you doing justice, loving kindness, or walking humbly? What stands in the way of you becoming fully what God has called you to be. Maybe one of those things stood out for you this morning as we were talking through them, right? Maybe it's the doing justice piece, or maybe it's the loving kindness piece, or the walking humbly, or maybe it's all three of those. Don't just brush past that. Take some time this week to pray, take some time to ponder, 
Take some time to ask yourself why it is that you're coming up short in that area of your life. Maybe do some journaling on that. Maybe talk this week with a friend or make an appointment to talk to one of our pastors. Listen, the story of Israel, of which we are a part as the people of God, our whole existence is pointing toward us being a blessing to the world. When God called Abraham out from among the nations, it was so that Abraham could receive a blessing and be a blessing. And when God has called us out of the world as Christians into the people of God, it is so that we could receive a blessing and so that we could be a blessing. If we want to be all that we were really made to be, if we want to flourish and to thrive, then we need to give ourselves fully into the care of the gospel to receive this blessing in all of its fullness so that God will transform us and shape us into this vision of Micah 6.8 so that we can offer this vision out into the world. And together, we as a church, as a congregation, we need to be characterized by this vision so that when the neighbors here in Oak Park or Berwyn or River Forest or Austin or Galewood or Cicero, wherever our neighbors are, when they look at us, right? And they see this little church here in Oak Park. And many of us coming from those communities, right? But when the surrounding communities see this little church in Oak Park, do they see a church that is characterized by doing justice and loving kindness and walking in humility? Otherwise, if they're not seeing that reality, then what is the point of our preaching? We have no message to give if the message hasn't transformed us entirely. So we're going to be taking communion here this morning. And as we do, I want you to just reflect on these realities and truths, but let me close us in prayer as we transition into our time of communion this morning. Father, thank you that you have loved us and you have loved loving us, that you do love loving us, that you have established rules of justice to prevent harm, and yet you race to our aid when we don't follow those rules and we harm ourselves. And you remind us in all of your subtle or strong ways of what it means to walk humbly as creatures dependent upon you. God, we thank you uh, for the gift of Jesus, who is the embodiment of all of these virtues, the reality of all of them. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live with an awareness of his uh, truth and his grace in our lives. As we approach the table this morning, Lord, uh, help us to remember uh, our union with you, our relationship with you, which provides for us the source of all of these things, Lord, and the source also of our forgiveness when we fail. God, we love you. We thank you for your son. In his name we pray. Amen.